O sovereign Savior, you are the creator of all there is. And therefore, you own it. You are Lord of all creation. And you are our maker. We pray, God, that in your kind providence that you would um, speak to us now out of your holy word. We pray, Lord, that we would have ears to hear and hearts to understand what you give us. We pray that work of Christ Jesus would be glorified as your Holy Spirit leads and guides us through this time. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we are in Psalm 95. Um, everyone, uh, look at your uh, worship journal uh, on the front of your worship journal, not inside of it. Um, at the bottom there is a psalm verse. Uh, it says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker if I didn't uh, transcribe it wrong. Um, that is uh, verse 6 of Psalm 95. And that's so important to us that we um, have that on every single, every single worship journal, every single church bulletin that we've printed out, uh, guaranteed for the next few hundred. We have a little backlog um, so it's central to who we are as a group of people as a body of believers now every week that we are not taking the Lord's Supper we responsibly read out of the catechism that grew out of the uh, 1689 London Baptist Confession it's called Keech's Catechism and question number two is, what is the chief end of man? Its answer, as most of us well know, is the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To glorify God, we must recognize him for the greatness of who he is and obey and worship him accordingly. We believe the Bible tells us how to do these things. We have before us today a psalm that implores us, that urges us to praise God and to worship him. It also tells us why we must do this. And it tells us that to do this or to not do this is the difference between life and death.
As we look to the beginning of the psalm, um, I want to take the most striking thing about it first. Um, we have four, in the first four lines there, in the first two verses, we have four, what are they? Are, are they commands? Uh, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise. Let us come into his presence. Let us make a joyful noise. Um, they're, they're, not, they're not quite commands. They don't seem to be. Uh, is, is the psalmist asking that God's people be allowed to worship him? Uh, because that's what we mean when we say that, that we'll let somebody do something. Uh, these four phrases, they're verbs, and they're in, they're in verb tenses, right? And, uh, and uh, they can be called moods, and these verbs are in the jussive mood. Now, this is, um, this is a mood that we don't have in the English, and so we, 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 we try to create it. Um, the sense is one of a strong imploring or an urging. These aren't commands, it's true. But the psalmist is urging us to praise God. It's a forceful word, but it's short of a command. This isn't a king or the king commanding us to worship him. This is, this is a, a peer or, or, or an elder uh, maybe a respected brother or sister in Christ, imploring us to worship God. So the psalmist is urging his countrymen to come and sing praises with thanksgiving to God in his very presence. Three of these imploring verbs are musical. The, the word for sing in verse 1 is not the most common word for singing in the Bible. This is really an energetic singing. Uh, it's translated often rejoice or sing aloud or shout for joy or sing for joy. Uh, in fact, it's used, it's got such an energy to it. It's used for the sound of the wind that we might have heard recently as it, as it bends and, and, and stresses a wooden pole or a tree. It's a, it's a sound that has within it an energy and a, and, and a force. So this is an energetic um, word for singing. The other two uh, musical verbs that are imploring us to praise God this morning are translated joyful noise. You see in the, in the second and the fourth line. Let us make a joyful noise. Um, they're actually barely musical at all. Uh, what, what really makes them more musical is, is the fourth line there. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. The word is actually uh, the same word that, um, that the people of Israel uh, were urged to do when they, when they marched around Jericho. And they were told to shout. That is this word. Uh, it's not inherently musical, but here, uh, the fourth line, there in verse 2, let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. 
Now these, these verbs, they share an energy and an excitement. And I'd, I think I'd be remiss taking us through this psalm if I didn't encourage us in that way. Um, I, I, I think we tend toward more reverent worship. And I want to encourage us with some of these words. There's, there's no question that our worship of God uh, should be uh, exuberant and, and exciting uh, in, in a way, in a reverential way. Um, the fourth verb there uh, is not musical, but it is very important because it emphasizes really the tenor of this passage. Uh, see, at the beginning of verse 2, we have the word come, just as in verse 1, but it's a different word in verse 2. And in verse 2, the word has an anticipation, has an urgency to it. And you can see how that fits in with the energetic words as uh, joyful noise and uh, the, the forceful word of the singing. Um, aside from matching the energy level of the psalm, this word for come is appropriate in another way. Because he says, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. To come into the very presence of God was a guarded thing. Uh, the, the whole temple structure accentuated the primacy and, and really the separateness of the very presence of God. And yet this psalm tells us to come into his presence with an excited praise to God, into his very presence with thanksgiving. And worship always, always includes thanksgiving. In 2 Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul is explaining how the glory of God is transferred to his people when they turn to the Lord in praise. In verse 18, it reads, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That same image is, of course, the image of Jesus Christ, our beloved Lord. When we biblically praise God, we take advantage of the access to God's very presence which Christ himself accomplished on the cross. Remember that the barrier between holy God and sinful people was removed. It was torn away for everyone who will only believe. How much more exciting a thought is there? I urge you, I implore you with the psalmist here to sing praises to God with all your might. Now, what about the rock of our salvation? I didn't mention that yet. I will come back around to that as it's, uh, it's referenced historically later in the psalm. Now, verses 1 and 2 implore us and urge us to praise God. In verses 3 through 5, 
Give us the reason why God should be praised. They're an explanation of why he deserves this energetic shouting praise. The first reason given is because he's great. Now this word great, it's, it's used indiscriminately in the Bible. It, it, it's attached to many different things, not just God. But as it relates to God, it speaks of his splendor and his power and basically all of who he is as being more to the extreme than anything or anyone we can imagine. It's the degree to which he is who he is. In the second line of verse 3, and, and he is a great king above all gods. This is um, a little more of a description of him and his might. That word God is applied sometimes to kings, sometimes to angels. And it's applied to God as well. And God is great beyond imagining, beyond these other mighty beings. But verses 4 and 5 give us more reason than just God's ontology, the characteristics of his being to praise him. We are told that some things belong to him, and so he deserves our praise. In fact, the whole world belongs to God here. The depths of the earth, the mountains, and the sea. These are the lowest and the highest and, and the wettest. Listing boundaries like this is a way of saying that all there is belongs to him. It's like saying the north and the south and the east and the west. It all belongs to him. And that's what it's saying here. And the reason that it belongs to him is because he made it. The psalmist using this reasoning that everything belongs to God because God made everything, that makes sense because biblically, that's the pattern, isn't it? In Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. And so everything belongs to him. It's a brilliant polemic. It's a brilliant argument. Being the creator of a thing is the most obvious way, in the most obvious way, gives you primacy over what is created. And the Bible uses the fact of God's creatorness many times here in our psalm, in Genesis 1. And remember John 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. This is... This is uh, recognizing Christ Jesus as eternal God himself. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, there's a great hymn about Christ, and he is the instrument of creation at the beginning of that hymn, and he is the instrument of the creation of God's redeemed people as well. The firstborn from the dead, it says. So the earth belongs to God, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. 
So we are called to exuberantly praise God because he is great. Because he owns everything. Everything's his because he made it. And verses 6 and 7 are kind of a repeat in abbreviation of those ideas. So let's look at them. Here in verse 6, we have two more lines of this psalm in the imploring, urging, jussive mood. I like that word. It's, it's, uh, it's caught my imagination. Um, but it's this, it's this urging us to do something. And uh, for the third time in the psalm, a verse begins with the word come. Uh, the first word in verse 1 of the psalm was, was more generic. It's, it's just asking someone to, to come with you or to join you in something. Uh, the, the, the second time in verse 2, we reviewed it's, 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 it's got an energy, a, 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 an anticipation of coming. This third time's still a different word for the word come. And it's more intimate. It's more fitting, actually, of the praise here in verse 6. Because the praise is taking on a different timbre. It's taking on a different tone. We've lost the energetic singing and shouting in verses 1 and 2. And verse 6 reads more reverently with three words that express a, a humble and a bowing posture. The words in the ESV are worship, which is defined by, by bowing down and crouching and, and falling flat on your face before God. And then and then next is bow down, right? Come let us worship and, and bow down. Well, the, the word for bow down, it's a single word in the original language, and and it means almost exactly the same as worship. It's this, this idea of prostrating yourself. And the word kneel, verse 6. So come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord. And so there's this threefold emphasis with these three words. And they all are urging us to worship God in this way, in, in this uh, ultimately reverential way where we are bowed down low before him. But he's not just Lord here, is he? Here he's, he is Yahweh, our maker. Think about that phrase, Yahweh, Lord, our maker. The word Lord, it's, it's a little bit of a shame. It, it, it is an, a word that carries eminence. It puts someone apart and up. Um, God, God is that, certainly. But the word here is Yahweh. It's his personal name. It's the name he gave to us to call him. It may be the most imminent name that we can call God. It's very near. 
And yet, not many descriptions of God or, or word describers of God are more eminent or are more, are more lofty and exalted than, than the fact that he's our maker. So in combination, he is, he is so near to us, and yet he's also our creator God who holds the unchallenged sovereignty over us that only our creator could. So in verse 6, we are urged and implored to praise God, just as in verses 1 and 2, but with a different tone. And we have a corresponding reason given, just as there was a reason given in verses 3 through 5. Here in verse 7, there's a reason given, and it's the same reason. The same reason. But in verses 3 to 5, the, the belonging is because he is the creator. Here in verse 7, his being our creator is, is because we belong to him. So it's all, it's all mixed together. It's all wrapped up together and driven home with this threefold emphasis again. He is our God. We are the sheep of his pasture. We are the people, I'm sorry, we are the people of his pasture. And we are the sheep of his hand. That last one is a shepherding picture with the shepherd bringing his sheep into the fold for the night. And the entrance is intentionally narrow, ideally so that only one sheep at a time can go through. And the shepherd puts his hand out with the crook across the entrance and the sheep come in one at a time. And one by one, he brings them to their rest for that night. So here's this, this imploring us, this urging us to praise God, verses 1 through 7. And they are, um, there's a strong uh, urging here for us to praise God in, in a couple different aspects, in this, in this excited, shouting way, and in this very reverential way of bowing down. Let me read these verses again, uh, verses 1 and 2. O come, I will sing to the Lord. I will make a joyful noise to the rock of my salvation. I will come into his presence with thanksgiving. I will make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. It's wrong, isn't it? It's wrong because I've replaced the plurals with singulars. The psalmist is not writing about himself. The psalmist is writing for his people, for all the people of God together to worship God. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us Come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. In verse 6, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, 
not my maker. He's our maker. For he is our God. We are not the person of his pasture. We are the people of his pasture. It's all wrong if it's just me. Lord, forgive me for intentionally misreading your holy word to your people. But we need to understand that Jesus didn't bleed and die so that I could be some kind of self-actualized Christian. All the saints of all the ages redeemed by the life and death of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, can fit into the pages of the Bible. All of them. What won't fit here is a single, solitary Christian living life to himself. We have to worship together, brothers and sisters. We have to. Probably one of the things that first drew me to this psalm is is this knee-jerk change here. There, there's a there's a there's a change in in tone from excited reverential worship to to this to this warning and the core of the warning is the only of the warning is is the only command in the psalm do not harden your hearts it's the only command in the whole psalm The psalmist is urging and pleading and imploring his fellow believers to sing and to shout praise to God and to kneel down reverently and bow down before Creator God. But the only command is do not harden your hearts. I mean, if you look at it, it starts at the end of verse 7 today. Tells us when it should be done, whenever it's appropriate, whenever it crosses your mind. Preferably now. If you hear his voice. Today, if you hear his voice. And this qualifies who should do it. Those who hear the voice of God. And then he says, do not harden your hearts. As at Meribah, as on the day of Massah. Now this is a historical. It's defining the command with a historical example. So what happened at Meribah and Massah? Water out of the rock, right? Remember verse 1. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. It cannot be an accident that God is called the rock of our salvation in this psalm where his people's testing is at the rock where water flowed. Usually, God being our rock is a picture of a refuge up on a high cliff or, or him being a sure foundation. But here, it's more likely that, that God, the rock of our salvation, is the life-sustaining God who brings water out of the unlikeliest of places. The words Meribah and Massah, they mean quarreling and testing. So the psalmist is telling us this is a picture from their history that defines what it means to have a hardened heart. Now look there in verse 9. 
where God's people put him to the test and put him to the proof. Their testing here, it was not the hopeful testing of Gideon. Now Gideon's testing, remember, he was called by God to be a great uh, savior for his people in the time of the judges. And he, and he questioned the calling, just like Moses did, just like so many, so many of us do. And he says, it's as if Gideon is saying, are you really going to work this miracle through me, the least son of the least family of your people? Gideon, there's, with Gideon, there's a hopefulness to the testing. The testing of God by his people at Meribah and Massah is a doubtful testing. And it asked literally, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? I mean, do you hear the blame there? It's the blame of a hardened heart. Verse 10 explains the consequences to the historical example, emphasizing the command's importance. They were the people, the same people, of the generation that also refused to enter the promised land. In Psalm 106, it says they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. Again, in Psalm 106, verse 26 says, says, God, in response to this, raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness. This is the result of hardening your heart. Verse 11 of the Psalm 95 echoes the chilling end result of disobeying this command. Do not harden your hearts. Pharaoh hardened his heart, and the Bible called it sin. Zedekiah, one of the last kings of Israel in Jerusalem before they were taken off in captivity, Zedekiah hardened his heart against turning to the Lord. Literally, he hardened his heart against repentance. Proverbs 28, 14 reads, Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. And what about Ezekiel's heart of stone turned into hearts of flesh? Isn't that a picture of God's overcoming our hard hearts? Ezekiel eleven nineteen, and I will give them one heart, and this is God speaking, and I will a, a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. And why is he going to do this? That they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. For obedience sake? Is that done for obedience sake? No. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. So it's pretty clear that not hardening your heart means that you still have the ability to obey God and please him. From the New Testament, we know the outworking of this. 
this not hardening your hearts. This is done by grace through faith. The Holy Spirit building the faith given to us by God and working into us. The Holy Spirit works into us the mind of Christ, teaching us how to love God through the humbling rule of his holy law, perfectly fulfilled by and in Christ, giving glory to God through the love we show to him and to others. It begins and it ends in Christ, and every step of the way is in Christ, for we are sinners. Yet there is plenty that we are to do. We are to keep our hearts from being hardened as we're commanded in this psalm. We are to put away earthly things, put to death what is earthly, and put away what we used to be, and to put on, as you would put on clothing, put on godly attributes, to forgive one another, to be at peace with one another, to love one another, to outdo one another in showing honor, to live in harmony with one another, to wait for one another, to have the same care for one another, to greet one another with a holy kiss, to comfort one another, to agree with one another, through love to serve one another, to bear with one another in love, be kind to one another, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. There are more. One another's in the Bible are many. And that's, that's what we have to do. There's certainly no shortage of things for, for us to put our effort in. And yet, our psalm says, if you hear his voice, if, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. What, what does that even mean? Well, Rod said it earlier when he was reading, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's that's all through the Gospels. All are commanded to hear. Only some will hear. And that's daunting, but it's also encouraging because some, some will hear, undoubtedly. God is sovereign in this And he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. That's the day when the great shepherd of the sheep will usher us into the rest of God. But for those who do not hear his voice, who harden their hearts. The end of our psalm. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. 